Today's guest is Gary Markham, founder of LSG and Axpire, two companies in the legal tech and fintech space. We're welcoming Gary to Miami as he is part of a growing number of New York companies calling Miami home. Gary will share with us why he chose Miami, the challenges legal and financial companies face, and how he uses technology to optimize billing, expense management, and more for his clients. Gary has generated over $1.2 billion in client savings. So take a listen and learn how he can help your business. Welcome to Miami Global Net Podcast, where we discuss Miami's international relations. We will showcase Miami's international diplomatic and business landscape and get to know the innovative startups calling Miami home. Meet the people behind the organizations that contribute to Miami's commercial and cultural international growth. Gary, welcome on the show. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Alex. Thanks, Ben. How's, uh, how's everything over there? Yeah, it's pretty good. I can't complain. Good, good, good. Same here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I've been in the consulting and technology space, mainly around fintech or financial technology, a little bit of legal tech for around 20 plus years. Started out in the Lloyds of London market uh, when I was kind of thrown into the deep end when you might remember, but there was a technical insolvency where the entire insurance world collapsed because of massive claims. And I was thrown in as a project manager to help try and pull a team together to resurrect that part of the business and kind of carve it off into what's called a, a runoff. And it was, became the world's largest runoff insurance company. And a runoff is very odd because it starts out with large assets and large liabilities, a big company with the idea to shrink it into a small company, as opposed to growing a small company into a big company. And that was quite a learning experience. And from that, I, I met a lot of people and uh, got, got into the space. We were uh, doing quite well in London, met a company in Philadelphia who were into the litigation management and spend management sort of technology space, really early adopters, talking about mid to late 90s now. And I really got on well with them. We got on well together and we kind of took a journey. They got bought out by a large company, which is now DXC Technology. Before that, it was called CSC, which was a 100,000 employee, $15 billion company. We became part of that for a few years. But to be honest, I became quite jaded in working for a large corporation as an employee, I became frustrated by all the bureaucracy trying to get to help the client and all the and all the nonsense I had to jump through to get there. So I basically left and then started LSG, which is our, the parent company, the sister company to the other companies we have in the group now in 2003. So what's that, 17 years ago? Since that, we grew it out, multiple offices around the planet, you know, a few ebbs and flows and ups and downs, but a lot of learning and, and more recently, a lot of very cool technology. We got a team based here in Miami, San Francisco, London in the UK, in Europe, and in, in India. So we're kind of like a little company with a global footprint. I like it. I like it. You recently arrived to Miami, correct? Yeah. So about 18 months ago, and there's a, kind of like a few reasons why we came to Miami. Uh, having spent nearly 30 years in, in the UK near London, we had business in, in the U.S. and other parts of the world for maybe, say, 15 years of, of that 30. Got married, had kids that are now obviously adults and so forth. And we decided that we wanted to kind of, you know, spread our wings a little bit. We loved New York. I had an office in New York that was, in fact, our headquarters. So we moved to Manhattan. So we lived in this little sleepy town in England, which, has, which had 
22 houses and three pubs, right? Yeah. <laughs> in, into Upper East Side Manhattan. So quite a change. So quite a change for the family, uh, quite a change for the kids, obviously going from private British schools into the U.S. high schools, quite a change for them. They, they did exceedingly well, by the way. Years of that, I decided that 10 years in New York is practically a lifetime. It's a, it's a tough city. And of course, we still have a lot of clients there. We visit New York every now and again, you know, pre-COVID and hopefully post-COVID. But moving to Miami was for two reasons. It was not just that we weren't just done with New York. It was, I could sense that a lot of people were gravitating towards Miami. It was starting to become a technology hub, a commerce hub, a, a banking and financial services hub. You know, we've got a few big funds that have moved here and so forth. Also, a lifestyle change. When I moved out of the city, we're really not city people. So we wanted to have our kind of life back again, the space with the family and so forth. Also, other connections in the family is my sister-in-law lives very near. You know, we, we're very close with them. They're in the family as well. And up until last year before he died, my father-in-law was here as well. So we wanted to be close to them. So we literally bought a house two streets over from my sister-in-law, set up an office in Brickle. The welcoming the company and the business itself has been, has been pretty much overwhelming. You know, one good thing about down here is we have no snow. <laughs> I'll tell you this. We keep a house in Vermont, in Stowe, Vermont, which is the sort of ski capital of the East. And I agree with you. Snow is great for skiing and maybe having a snowball fight. Apart from that, particularly the city, it's not good at all. <laughs> I can't. I mean, I never forgot when I did my master's in Ohio and I was scraping ice from inside the car. That was really the top for me. I was scraping it outside. I was putting the chain on the tires, but, you know, it was scraping the ice inside. Was and your fingers, your fingers were going numb at the same time, right? Yeah, I was using a little scraper, but, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Northeast in the wintertime can be quite brutal. I don't think I miss that side of it. Like I say, I'm, I'm privileged enough to be able to go there when I want and maybe go skiing and enjoy that part of it. But to live in that environment where you're shoveling out of your townhouse in New York on a sludgy morning, forget about it. Hey, I feel you. I haven't lived it for too long, but I did a year and a half up there. So I got a little taste. So FinTech, the office here in Miami or, or what you do in general has many aspects, right? When I saw your LinkedIn, you're, you have many different FinTech companies. Should we run down through a couple? You mentioned LSG in your intro. Yeah. So LSG was the obviously the founding company that we started way back in, in fact, 2002. We started trading in 2003, but we've launched a few companies or spin-outs from that. They are still the fintech base, but they're different industry verticals. LSG has traditionally been working with insurance companies, corporate legal departments, large retail brands that you can come from, whether it's a, an airline or a, a soft drink company or a big technology company. So we've always come from a background where we work with big companies in that particular space, which is around legal tech. And about four years ago, we were pulled into the wider fintech space through getting involved with a large hedge fund, a top 10 hedge fund, who came to us with a particular problem to solve that they couldn't get fixed with other very large companies. I can't name them on this, this, this podcast, of course. but uh, And they turned to us and said, well, we've heard a good reputation from you guys. Can you, can you help us? They kind of pulled us into that world. And from there, we've spawned another whole division under another brand called Axpire, where we created other fin applications. So we basically produce, we design, we architect, design, build, deploy, and maintain fintech applications, software tools for our clients. Legal side is dealt with on the LSG. And in the fintech side, it's typically dealt with through Axpire. 
Touching a little bit on the legal tech, what does that space mean? Like, can you paint a picture for us? Yeah, so there's two sides to it for us. There's the side that is client-facing. So the client managing its, its, its law firms and other adjunct professionals in the way in which it manages either litigation or advisory work, which could be, let's say, like M&A or, or something like that, right? How does a large corporation manage their law firms from a, an ongoing basis to say, how are they managing the caseload? How are they managing against budgets and so forth? You know, it's all around kind of vendor management. Um, and I know law firms don't like to be called vendors, so but I'll, I'll put that out there. It's because it's it's a known term. So on the client side, it's having applications that can basically enable the client to manage their sometimes global network of law firms in a central single site, an application, software application. So that's legal tech. Other side of legal tech is, is what is what is law firm facing? What do the law firms need? So they have case management needs. They have practice management needs. They have time recording and billing needs. And of course, LSG also provides softwares on that side of the equation too. So we have both client-side or client-facing software applications to serve the client, and we have law firm-facing applications to support the law firms. That's roughly legal tech. And of course, I could go very deep on this and we could spend a lot of time. It's a big space, but it's predominantly both client and law firm facing. Okay. So we have LSG with the legal tech, Aspire that does financial software development for financial institutions and hedge funds. and Right. Private equity, family office. You can put it under the bucket of wealth management, right? So whether it's private wealth management for ultra high net worth individuals or whether it's family offices, whether it's hedge funds. So for example, I'm a global board director of the Hedge Fund Association. Uh, we work very closely with the Miami Finance Forum, which is obviously close to general financial world, FIBA, the Four International Bankers Association. We sit on the Innovations Committee. So very much plugged into that world here in Miami. Hedge Fund Association is a global organization. These technologies help people save money, help these companies save money. Right. So there's two sides to that equation. So if you are spending money as a client, you want to know if you can contain costs. So it's called cost containment. And how do you go about that? Enabling your staff who are managing relationships with outside vendors like lawyers and others to be able to control or contain those costs is very important, whatever the size of your organization. So we provide tools that enable things like live budget tracking, making sure that rate management, i.e. what you're paying on a rate card is tracked, other validations and error corrections, all software-based. We even are now using machine learning and a little bit of AI. So on the client side, they're very keen to contain cost. COVID has obviously ramped that up even further, right? So the demand on that is even higher. On the law firm side, it's almost like the inverse. It's not as, not as much as you're containing costs, but you're managing against an internal budget that you might set for your team. So you might say, you know, we have a fixed fee case of $50,000. Okay, that's the price we're charging our client. How do I know as a practice manager that my team are not burning through those dollars quicker than, you know, we could burst right through the $50,000 and now we're not making any money. We need to manage budgets internally. So I need to be able to track my team are doing. It's an acronym called WIP. And by that, I mean, I can then see exactly what's being burned against my budget and ensure that we're going to remain profitable. Also, law firms are terrible at losing money through their billing process. I mean, from the moment they record an activity, say like record time for taking a phone call or something, to the other end where they're supposed to receive the actual revenues from that activity through their billing cycle, 
they lose on average 8% of gross revenues, which equates to around 27% of margin. That's a mm. huge loss. And they all have this problem. So we focus in on supporting that side of the, uh, the, the law firm equation as well, so that they're, they're not losing or bleeding these losses. So interesting points you brought up there for the uh, legal aspect of it. What about the fintech? Basically, what we've learned in the legal tech space, we've managed to adopt some of that same technology base and then use that and apply that into the hedge fund and wealth management space. Although there's different requirements, so it's not just around cost containment. There's also workflows. There's a lot of due diligence. There's compliance. There's regulatory reporting involved because they're highly regulated, for example, by the SEC or FINRA in the United States, FCA in the UK. So there's other requirements also to make sure that things like the expenses that we capture through our applications are then allocated appropriately against each of the funds or legal entities against which investors are putting their dollars. You know, if you're investing, say, a million dollars into a particular fund, that fund is then going off and reinvesting those dollars into various legal entities which support whatever those investments might be. You want to make sure that whatever dollars come through that hit the expense side of the fund are apportioned and allocated accurately. We've seen large firms find multi-million, sometimes tens of millions of dollars for something which you might say is an innocuous thing like misallocating an expense, a dollar against the wrong fund. But when you're talking about some of these hedge funds and private equity firms where you're talking tens or hundreds or even billions of dollars, if you get your numbers wrong by just a few percent in terms of allocating expense against the wrong fund, that hurts the investors that are getting over allocations against their side of the fund. So we have very complex technology, which includes algorithms to ensure that the allocation of expenses that flow through the application can be um, apportioned appropriately, accurately, and correctly against these funds and or the legal entities behind those funds, which is a little bit of a technical dive there, but I thought I'd try and explain that. So, of course, coming from all this process and workflow, we collect a ton of data, and from the data, we provide analytics reports effectively, but also aid the, the client, our clients, to understand what's happening with the flows of the data and the expenses within this sort of software ecosystem that we provide for them. Is there a lot of people in this world? Is it fairly new? There's a group called Fund Administrators or Fund Administration. It's kind of a function. It's like an outsourced service to the, to the wealth management space. They do a lot of services-based or outsourced, like a BPO, but, you know, business process outsourcing. But their technology, even though they claim that it's actually very complex and it's very user-friendly, <clears throat> is in fact, in most, in most cases, certainly those that we come across, including some of the very large shops, not that great. Um, so that's why we are able to connect ourselves with hedge funds and private equity firms and family offices, even though we're a much smaller company. It's because the user experience and the complexity that we bake into our software uh, is exactly what the client needs without it costing a ton of money by going to one of these fund administrators. It's an interesting dynamic because, of course, we end up almost competing with the fund administrators for the same piece of work. Yeah, there's competitors in the space. You know, there's there's those that, that come up against us all the time with uh, in RFPs. You know, clients ask for a quote from three or four vendors, so we're in the mix. We do quite well against our competitors. We don't always win. For us, it's a never-ending 
cycle of improvement. So it's not like I'm selling you version 1.5 of our software and that's going to be on the shelf for the next, you know, two years. We'll be at version 3.8 in one and a half years. So we're constantly enhancing, constantly improving. Uh, and we do that through client experiences. Uh, they give us the use cases, which is like a challenge to say, can you help me fix this problem? We take the problem away, the use case. Once we fix it, we bake it into the software, makes the client very happy. We have a better product. You got legal, financial, what other areas of industry you'd cover? Um, so it's law firm facing, uh, or I'll call it professional service providers. So we work with law firms, tax professionals. We're getting into the CPA market now, the certified okay. um, public accountants world. And you say, well, what has that got to do with what you're doing with hedge funds or with insurance companies? And the answer is, you may not think a lot, but it's in fact a lot because those law firms and tax professionals and accountants work for a lot of our clients, but they struggle to provide um, electronic expense data. So it all comes down to expense management, invoice and expense management. And so what we do is we provide very slick applications for them to be able to create electronic billing data that the client can instantly recognize, very quickly review, and very quickly pay. So we improve their payment cycle. So for us, it's important that we can aid the professional service providers to provide accurate and timely expense and billing data into their clients so that they don't lose that 8%. When you acquire new clients, do you normally reach out directly to the, let's say, the law office, or do you go through the accountant, or do you have to have both of them fall in love with your tech before they use it? Uh, that's a great question. It can be it can be either, and sometimes they're actually, they work together, but sometimes it can be, say, like the CFO. Sometimes it could be the head of the, the, the practice or a managing partner, right, if we're talking about the professionals. It's somebody that's typically involved in the profitability of that practice, so if you are charged with ensuring the targets for your practice, your financial targets are met, you have to understand how you go about achieving that, how you're tracking it, what technology you've got to use it. How are you ensuring that your staff are using this technology to make sure that you're on target? Uh, and that's basically what we do. We give them visibility. We give them optics. We give them analytics like dashboards, right? Everybody's into dashboards now. So and it's not like it's retrospective. We're not like reviewing something that happened three months ago. We're reviewing something that happened 15 minutes ago. So they're able to then respond if somebody is deviating from the goal. I'll, I'll use that as a very general term. But if they're deviating from the goal of the target, then the practice manager or the, or the managing partner is able to jump in and say, why are we deviating? Why is John or Mary deviating off the target when everybody else is on target? So they can really jump on that problem and, and deal with it in a real-time, proactive fashion. The same approach must be used in the fintech. Each world is much larger than one thinks. Like the legal people are focused on providing legal services. The financial services, they're all making money. It's all about the money. But yet they have to also charge their client. Right. So that's depending on how yeah. large the firm is. is you know, more manpower is allocated to that or, or sometimes yeah. it's a, a small shops. Talking about small shops, can anyone use your services? So there's two answers to that question. Um, on the professional services side, so what we do with lawyers and tax professionals, that software, that can we have two-man band shops. We have very small shops, and then we have practices that have over a thousand attorneys, and everything in between, right? 
So obviously different price point. If you've got a thousand attorneys per attorney, it's going to be less. But yeah, we serve, we serve a very wide range. On the client side, I would say that in the fintech, so if we're looking at, you know, what's the size of the client that we would typically target as a minimum, it's probably going to be a client that's serving or servicing probably more than $1 billion of assets under management or assets under administration Got and it. above. And we have clients that have tens of billions, many tens of billions that roll up into sometimes hundreds of billions. So what's the next step for you? Well, I think at the beginning of the call, Alex, you mentioned that, you know, you looked at my profile and you can see that there's various threads of things going on that may not be obvious. And you've, te- you've helped me kind of tease them out and Thank you for letting me explain them to you and your audience tonight. What we decided to do, and I'm not giving any trade secrets and I'm not going to give any details, is that we want to make sure that the messages that we give out from a marketing perspective, like on our websites, are very clear. At the moment, we are targeting certain industries with certain softwares under certain brands, under certain legal entities. So again, I don't need to name the product, but you said you know one of LSG's products is such and such, we're targeting a particular client base. Axpire has a, a, a number of products targeting fintech clients. We're going to start coalescing. We're going to start aggregating around both the product names and, in fact, the entity names. So we're going to start rolling this into a group structure so that rather than having multiple legal entities with their own products serving different industry verticals, we're going to bring that under a common umbrella and a common brand naming convention. Do you have any, a time frame for this project? Yeah, this will be done before the end of Q4 2020. So we'll come out of the gates in 2021 as a, I'm not going to say brand new shiny thing, but effectively it will be much clearer from our client audience or audiences as to who we are and what we can deliver. I'll just say it like that. Okay. We'll look forward to that. Let me know. Maybe we can do another another show and focus on that. I'd love to share it with you. None of this is public yet, so I'm just giving you kind of the you know rough draft here. But sure. So I know that we're running out of time. What has been the impact of COVID in the industry? Right. So I think during the early months of COVID, as companies got used to kind of the lockdown and having to work from home and this all room working, and some were better than others, um, it was it was very I guess fortuitous for us in as much as as a technology company with a disaster recovery plan baked into our operating model, for us to move to a remote working mode was not that difficult. A few little hiccups. Did everybody have enough laptops, you know, and the bandwidth of their internet, all that kind of stuff, little niggly things. But apart from that, we were kind of good to go. Many companies weren't prepared for that, and, and that caused them a bit of a hiccup. And I think the impact of that, and then betting into sort of starting to work from home and you know, using Zoom and the other kind of online meeting channels and stuff like that, that also took some time. That slowed down decision-making. So, you know, I'm not able to kind of go to my client's office and look them in the eye and shake their hand and say, yes, let's do this deal, because you couldn't do that. You can't do that with COVID. So that, I think, had a delaying impact. The other impact, I think, which has been positive for us, that this issue of now I've got time on my hands, I need to start looking at what I'll call operational optimization efficiencies, whether it's cost containment or whether it's digitizing a process which is currently manual. Of course, we do that. We're basically a digital transformation company. That's actually been very positive for us. So we've been busier now on the marketing side than we've ever been in the history of the company. And I think that's down to kind of like what happened in the post-global you know, financial crisis, the GFC time. 
when times are hard, people focus inwardly on their operating models and efficiencies. But when times are good and there's tons of profits and we're all eating out of the trough, it's all front-end loaded, like you said earlier, and nobody really worries about the mid and back office or the operational efficiencies. COVID has had an impact where people are starting to look more closely at that, and that's helped us. That's benefited us big time. So that's kind of my spin on it. You mentioned the the person-to-person. How important would you say person-to-person is in the financial industry? Being able to be there with your client, talk to your client in person for you or, or for your area. Yeah. So to me, to me, that's a very human question, not necessarily a business question. I'd like to think that I have kind of what I'll call good radar. It's kind of like a sales technique where you need to be able to listen to your client. If you can look them in the eye and you can see how their what their body language is and how they're behaving like that, you can sense things as a human being, right? If you don't have the ability to, if you, even if you're on video, it's not the same thing. So let's just say you're not on video and you can you can just hear them. Being able to understand their tone of their voice to be able to get a grip on how they're viewing either how the call's going or you know what you propose it's i think it's heightened your listening skills it's heightened it's fine tuned your radar so to speak right to be able to understand okay i really need to listen now um, and i need to get this out of the nuances of the voice of my client to be able to understand how this is going what they need am i responding properly what they need next and that sort of thing in terms of the sales event, like closing a deal, yeah, I mean, I'm, I like the warm and fuzzy. I'd like to, you know, be with my client, have a relationship with my client, know my client, because we don't have three-month relationships. We go through, we, we meet them, we go through dating, we go through courting, we get married, we have kids, we have grandkids, it, and it goes on, right? So these are yeah. long-term professional relationships, multi-year relationships we have with our clients. It's, a, it's, it's, it's that kind of process. So I think the COVID impact of not being able to do those, you know, meets and greets and all the rest of it, I'm, I'm a little bit saddened by that. But, you know, we know our clients quite well. We keep in touch very regularly. But I, I do think that's had an impact on closing deals simply because you don't have that base and that rapport that you're able to build up, particularly with new clients that you don't know yet, right? You're still building these relationships. Very difficult to build relationships when you're talking over LinkedIn or Skype or Zoom or something, right? I agree with you. I think the personal connection with people being there in, in the same space is is never going to go away. I think all these tools yeah. that we're using now because of the virus um, yeah. have made some things easier, but you're still going to need that personal connection, at least initially, at least initially. And then every once, every so often, maybe I'm not going to go to see you every month, you know, but uh, like I right. used to, yeah. but at least... At least that first initial, and then maybe, maybe six months. You know, I'm sure every industry, every company will adapt, and but I think the personal touch is always going to be important. Is always going to stick around. My last client face-to-face meeting, which was with an existing client in Chicago, it's a it's a big airline. Um, obviously, they're having you know they've had some real difficulties, but was in January, around January 16th, 17th, about a month before we kind of went into lockdown and then started working remotely. I've been a person that's been traveling internationally for. 15 years and normally my suitcase my favorite to me bag has been next to my bed half empty or half full ready for the next trip i haven't seen that luggage for seven months <laughs> crazy no hopefully we can bring that back well there's some good sides to that as well you know i think you you know you're a lot closer with your family we've had our it's true our kids here for for months on, a, on end which is great we've managed to get on and work together so it's a different dynamic i don't think the situation is going to change anytime soon Forgetting about what you hear on CNN or BBC or 
you know, any other news channel that begins with an F that I never watch. But, you know, unless there's something that's usable and it's safe, I think we're in this for probably another year with regards to wearing masks, social distancing, and all that kind of good stuff that we do to respect each other's uh, health. Probably. I agree. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you very much for taking that time and joining us to sharing your story about coming to Miami and the services that you provide. And we wish you the best and thank you for choosing Miami. Well, thank you, Alex and uh, Miami Global. That's been a great little podcast here and I'll definitely avail myself when uh, there's things that are changing that are newsworthy. And thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you.